So today, hopefully, what we'll do is cover a topic that most of you seem to be very interested in last week after we finished, which is the rapture, and then cover the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which is a somewhat famous scene from Revelation. But first, let's review last week. So last week, we showed that this revelation that we're looking at here takes place during a seven-year period. That seven-year period begins when there's a contract, a treaty, a covenant between the Antichrist and the nation Israel. The Antichrist, or the beast, is a leader of some version of the Roman Confederation. And we know that because from Daniel there are four kingdoms. There, there is Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And Rome is described as this kingdom that's more vicious and more destructive than any other, but also very brittle. And if you'll think about the Roman Empire, it never actually got defeated. It just broke into pieces. And then it keeps reconfiguring itself, and then it breaks into pieces again. In Daniel, we saw that this seven-year period is called the 70th week. There's a prophecy of weeks of years. And that came about to Daniel when he was praying to God and saying, I have read, God, Daniel saying, I've read the prophecy of Jeremiah, and here we are in exile in Babylon, away from Jerusalem that's in desolation, and you have prophesied through the prophet Jeremiah that this is going to last for 70 years, and we're coming up on the end of the 70 years. Lord, please forgive us and restore And Gabriel comes down and says, okay, I'm going to give you the answer. The answer is there's going to be a complete restoration. In fact, everlasting righteousness is going to come in. The anointed one is going to be placed on the throne. All things are going to be restored to Israel, including the cities going to be reconstructed. But that's going to happen in 77s or 490 years. So the answer to the end of the 70 is 77s. And then the angel goes on to describe that 69 sevens are going to happen, and then Messiah will be cut off. And then the 70th seven will happen, and there's going to be an abomination of desolations, and that abomination of desolations is going to take place, and there's going to be tremendous destruction. So it's a very confusing answer to Daniel because he says, yes, there's going to be a restoration, but there's also going to be another destruction. And then that's going to all be part of a complete restoration that brings in everlasting righteousness and Messiah on the throne, even though during it, Messiah is cut off. And it's 483 years and Messiah is cut off, and then seven years, and then there's everlasting righteousness brought in. Well, now what we know is that there's this huge gap between the 483 years and the 7 years. And that is called the time of the Gentiles. So for the nation Israel, the clock is ticking when the edict goes out to rebuild the walls, and then the clock stops when Messiah is cut off, when Jesus is cut off. And that could be at specific different times during Jesus' ministry. We don't know what the exact time. It could be when Jesus says, from now I'm going to tell parables lest you return. It could be when Jesus uh, came into the city. It could be when Jesus was crucified. We don't know the exact dates. But Messiah was cut off, and now that clock is stopped. The stopwatch is stopped. It will start again when there's a treaty between the Antichrist, which will be some leader in some reconfiguration of the Roman power. 
hours, and we're still in the Roman era, then this seven-year period will start. In the middle of the seven years, there will be another abomination of desolations, just like there was in Antiochus Epiphanes, which um, took place as like a precursor. And when this, uh, when this takes place, and it will be some sort of a desecration of the temple, so the temple will have to be rebuilt. And when that takes place, then the period that Revelation calls the Great Tribulation will begin. And it's three and a half years. We actually don't see in the book of Revelation any mention of seven years. We see the mention of the Great Tribulation. We see a mention of three and a half years. It's talked about several times. So to piece together that this, this is the seven years of Daniel... What we did is we looked at Matthew 24 that shows that Jesus saying that the great tribulation will begin when the, the abomination of desolation spoken of in Daniel takes place. Then we went and looked and saw Daniel's abomination of desolation takes place in the middle of the 70th week, which is a seven-year period. And so, therefore, we deduce, we deduce that revelation is taking place during this seven-year period. The sign that's pointed to is never the contract other than in Daniel, the, the covenant. Because this covenant, you know, governments are making covenants all the time. It not necessarily would even be, even be a public covenant. But apparently this abomination of desolation will be very public. And that will be the time when you know, okay, this is it. This is the last three and a half years. So we're in this seven-year period, and one of the questions people had is, what about the rapture? Well, the Revelation doesn't talk much about the rapture, as I think you meant it when you're asking it, but there are a couple of raptures in, in Revelation. So let's look at that first. In Revelation 11, verse 11, we see a rapture. It's actually in verse 12. But let me give you the context here. There are two witnesses that God sends to testify against the world. And they are untouchable. They try to kill these guys. They can't touch them. Finally, finally they do. They kill them. And so their bodies lay in the street for three and a half days. There's all this worldwide celebration going on because these two guys are killed. Kind of like we celebrated when Osama bin Laden was killed. The world is going to celebrate because these two witnesses are killed. They have been pronouncing destruction on the earth and withholding of rain and so forth. And everybody knows that it's coming from them. And so when they die, the world is glad. So verse 11, now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. So here they are in the street and then suddenly they are resurrected. And they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. So what does that remind you of? Yeah, Jesus. It's just like Jesus, right? So Jesus was raptured. Rapture just means to be caught up, like you go from here to there. Beam me up. You're beamed up. Uh, you know, that's the, that's the only real part of Star Trek that hadn't actually happened yet. But it will. See, it's coming. So uh, he, he, they get beamed up. And everybody's, oh my gosh. Well, so, so this is one type of rapture that has happened. This is the second time. So Jesus is resurrected and then raptures. And then uh, these two witnesses are resurrected and then are raptured. Now there's two other people who've been raptured, but they weren't resurrected. Who are they? Elijah 
Enoch. So Enoch and Elijah, one before the flood, one after the flood. So there's two examples of a rapture without a resurrection, and there's two examples of a rapture with a resurrection. One has happened, one is, one is yet to come with these two witnesses. So there's four different raptures, and there are two different kinds. Let me show you another rapture that I think arguably takes place, and this is in Revelation 19.20. Revelation 19.20 the war is taking place when Jesus comes back now as the conquering king that Israel was expecting him to be in the first place. In chapter 19, verse 20, it says, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, beast and antichrist, or the synonyms, and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So I would argue this is another rapture. They go straight from earth, right into the lake of fire, without even passing through death. You know, we're used to the body and the spirit being separated. And, you know, at the end, there's going to be a resurrection of sorts of everybody. There'll be a very different outcome for the redeemed, the non-redeemed. But here we are, the beast and the false prophet. They don't even die. They just go straight to the lake of fire. The interesting thing about this is if you look at Daniel 7, which I think is worth turning over there real quick. Daniel 7, verse 7. You've got this beast. It's the fourth beast again, which I would say was Rome. It has ten horns. It says in verse 8, I was considering the horns. Now, I know that that is a very popular verse for UT alums. (laughs) However, that's not what it's talking about here. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them. This would be the Antichrist, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and mouth speaking pompous words. And I watched till thrones were put in place... The Ancient of Days was seated. So here we are, the thrones. We keep being in the throne room. His garment was as white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousands, thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. The books were open. I watched because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame in the throne room coming from the throne. So you have this very, very fascinating image because in Revelation, the river of life comes from the throne. And it flows through the street and the tree of life is on either side. So from the throne comes the lake of fire that the beast and the false prophet go directly into. And from the throne comes the river of life that provides life to the earth. Interesting, huh? Is God the source of all things? It does make sense to me. So there's another kind of rapture. There's the rapture of the wicked. There may be a mass rapture of the wicked. Let's look at Matthew chapter 13. Now you know this as the parable of the tares. Matthew chapter 13. And Jesus is explaining the parable. And in verse 40, we see that the tares... Chapter 13, verse 40, Therefore, as the tares, a tear is a 
looks just like a wheat plant, but it doesn't have a kernel of, of grain in it. So the husk is empty. So this, you can't really tell the difference until you see the, until you see the product, the fruit. So in verse 40, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. So who's gathered up? The fruitful ones or the unfruitful ones? Unfruitful. So the tares are gathered up and thrown into the furnace. Interesting, huh? So that could be a rapture of unrighteous Jews. And it's possible that that is how Romans 11 happens. Let's look at Romans 11, verse 20. Romans 11, verse 20. Romans 11 is the restoration of Israel chapter. And he's talking here about not boasting against the olive tree and the branches of the olive tree that are Israel just because they were cut down and we, the wild olive tree, the Gentiles, were grafted in. Don't, don't be arrogant because of that. It's a matter, it's, that's happened as a consequence of their unbelief, he says. Verse 18, do not boast against the branches, but if you boast, remember, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. We are a part of Israel. We are a part of Judaism. We, we came in and were grafted in. Verse 19, you will say then, well, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. So I, I'm replacing them, right? No. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith, but do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. So there's consequences to unbelief. The consequence is not to be unborn after you've been born. Being born is something that is a gift. It's irrevocable. That's a gift that's irrevocable. But we can take our blessing and throw it away by our actions. Verse 22, therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fail. And then if we skip all the way down to verse 26, well, let's look at 25. I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Fortunately, that's not a problem for us, being wise in our own opinion, right? That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So this time period between the 480th year in the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel, where the time of the Jews stops and the time of the Gentiles begins, that is still the period we're in. But that period will come to an end. It will come to its fullness. And then the 70th week will start and the Jewish calendar starts back up again. And he says, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. And that's an interesting statement. All Israel will be saved. And you ask, well, how is that possible? Well, one way is the tares are harvested and thrown into the fire so that all is left are the redeemed Jews. Maybe. So maybe there's not only a rapture of the wicked beast and false prophet, there might also be a rapture of the Jews who see, who see Jesus and see all this stuff happen and still won't come to it. Maybe that's what happens. Could be. Revelation 18.4 might be a rapture. Revelation 18.4. There's this announcement that Babylon has fallen 
and a pronouncement of judgment on the nations who have rejected the ways of God. And then in verse 4 it says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive her for plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works, and the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. So that could be that they're going to come out by death and then come back and conquer. But it could also be a rapture that he's saying, okay, I'm taking you out now for believers during the tribulation. Now, none of those verses are actually the verses that most people who believe in a rapture point to. Let's look at those. First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. Now, this is in the context of Paul talking about the, the will of God, actually. In chapter 4, verse 3, it says, For this is the will of God. If you ever ask, have someone come to you and say, I just want to know God's will, just turn to this verse. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That's what God's will is. We always know that's what God's will is. It's funny how we get tripped up on making circumstantial decisions. And what we're usually thinking is, which circumstance can I choose that will get me what I want? Because what God wants is for me to get what I want. See, it's like Santa Claus. i just got to find the right Santa, sit on the right knee, and then I will get the toy I want. That's the way we usually think. But the Bible's real clear. The will of God is that we become all that we can be. And circumstances are not all that important. What we do in the circumstances is what's important. So he's talking about our sanctification. And then he gets to verse 13. And he says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who are dead in Christ lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So you're doing all this work, you're being sanctified, you're whatever circumstances you're in, you're being faithful in those circumstances. But I don't want you to be without hope. Because those who have gone before and are already dead, they have hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. Bring with them to where? That's a really interesting image, right? So here's Jesus bringing with him people who have already died to something, to some place. Maybe that's when he comes back on his white horse. For we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first... Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So here you have both kinds of raptures. One is the Jesus two witnesses rapture where they resurrect and then are raptured. And the other is the Enoch Elijah kind where you don't die in the first place and you're raptured. And they're both happening just one right after the other. First, first is the Jesus two witnesses one and right after is the other. Thus we shall also be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So the comfort is that there's hope for all. There's hope for all. Those who precede us in death, we have the same hope. The other main verse that people look at is uh, 1 Corinthians 15. 
While you're turning there, I'll mention that in 1 Thessalonians 5.2, just going on from the verses we were in, it says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need I write of you. You yourself know perfectly the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. So he makes this point that there's this rapture, but then he says nobody knows when it is. So bear that in mind as we look at 1 Corinthians 15. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 Uh, Behold, I tell you a mystery, he says, we shall not all sleep. Not everybody's going to die. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So there is a promise of rapture, and that's the Enoch and Elijah kind. But, we have then this very interesting thing where this says at the last trumpet and 1 Thessalonians says no man knows the hour. Well, what is this last trumpet? It could be the last trumpet of the age of the Gentiles or some other trumpet we don't know about. But if it's the last trumpet of Revelation, then it's going to be in a time area era where the abomination of desolations has happened. And which is it? Or is it both? You see how many different things are going on here? And let me make one other point to you. All all of these things sound like all believers are going to be resurrected, the dead and the non-dead. But let's look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. And this is representative. There's a lot of verses that say things like this. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him... He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And in this case, we're talking about salvation from our bodies and being here on the earth and the presence of sin, essentially. Okay, well then that sounds like that the appearing of Jesus is only for those who are specifically waiting for Him. And you can find a lot of verses like that. So what is it? You know, which one is it would be our typical way of thinking about it. Well, here's my answer. Look at John 7, verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. So here are people rejecting Jesus as the Christ because of prophecy. Were they wrong or right about the prophecy? Huh? They were correct. But what did they miss? All the rest of the picture, right? Because Jesus was out of Bethlehem. But he didn't. But he was not of Bethlehem. He was a Nazarene. He was, he was but he wasn't. See, he, he, he was born there and he was of the house of David and yet he was a Nazarene and came from Galilee. Because there were two sets of prophecies that said different things and this was an amazing way they both came true. And they didn't see the whole picture. So here's what I'm going to tell you. It may be all of these things plus a ton more. The point's not to figure out when is the rapture and who's going to go. The point is, be ready all the time. See, the, the whole point of Revelation is, I want you to be a great witness. 
because the ramifications of not being a great witness are huge. And the ramification of being a great witness is huge for you and for me and for the world. That's the point. The point is not to try to figure out how this is going to come together. You know, there's this little point we'll get to where the seven thunders say something. And God says, don't write that down. And it's kind of funny because people say, well, this is what, this, this is what they said. <laughs> don't you know that you don't know what they said? Isn't that really clear? I think the reason God put that there is, I'm not telling you everything. I'm telling you enough where you know what to do. Because remember what Revelation is? Read. Understand, do. That's the point. What does he want us to do? Be great witnesses. So here's the key points of rapture. There's hope. There's hope. There's a a few more principles that are worth talking about when it comes to rapture. Of course, it's a biblical concept. One principle is God delivers the godly from trials. Think about Lot and his family. Noah and his family. There's a verse that says uh, that Israel has sinned. And God says, I'm going to judge Israel. And he comes down and he says, you know, you're so bad. You're so bad that even if Daniel, Job, and Ezekiel, I think it is, were here and in your midst right now, I would just take them out. I, I wouldn't save everybody else because of them like I normally would. Usually, you know, ten righteous people is enough to preserve a whole land. But you've gotten so bad, I'm just going to take them out. So there's this principle that God delivers. And then there's a principle that God perseveres His people through trial. Think about Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a very godly guy. He went through the entire Babylonian exile. He was thrown in a pit. You can go read Ezekiel. He he went through the whole Babylonian exile. And, And God has him do some really bizarre things like Lay on your side naked for six months and, and prophesy how bad it's going to be and only eat food that you, that you uh, cooked on dung. and Just really bizarre stuff to make a point to these people to try to get them to listen. Uh, so sometimes God perseveres us through trial. And another principle is 1 Corinthians 10.13. There's no trial that... God will allow that He doesn't give us provision to resist. Well, what does that mean? If there's no temptation but such as common to man, and God is faithful that will, with the temptation will give us in a way of escape, what does that mean? That means God is screening every trial that comes into our life to see if we can handle it. And if He lets a trial into our life, that means He screened it and approved it. That's what that means. So, God delivers His people. God perseveres His people. Okay, those principles are not always uh, sort of compatible. You know, they're in tension with one another somewhat. When does he do which? Sometimes he does both at the same time. You know, Noah was delivered, but I, I arguably would say being in that boat for all that time starting the earth over was a trial in and of itself. Another principle is the righteous sometimes perish with or at the hands of the wicked. We saw this in the letter to the churches. Some of you are about to die. In fact, if we look at Revelation 6-9 real quick, and we're in now the fifth seal, which is where we're about to go, he opened the fifth seal and he saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
in the throne room, under the throne, those who have been martyred saying, we want justice. It's interesting, huh? They're aware of time. They're tired of waiting. They're asking for justice and vengeance on those who killed them. It's a little different picture than you get of heaven, isn't it? And he says, well, just hold on a little longer because more of you need to die first. And isn't this what Jesus told his apostles? All of you are going to die except John. And they said, how come John doesn't have to die? And he said, well, that's none of your business. That's my business. You go do your job. Oh, okay. And they did. So you got these three different principles. And you know who gets to decide which one is in function and a priority at any point in time? Not me. Not me. God gets to decide. So there's raptures going on all over the place. There's raptures of the dead, the undead, and the forever dead. They're, and they're all happening. I don't know exactly how that's going to happen. You know what I do know? It's really a good idea to be faithful and to be a great witness. Now, what should you wish for? What, what should you hope for? You can make up your own mind. I'll tell you what I hope for. I hope that I get raptured before all this bad stuff happens. <laughs> and that I get to heaven and I'm an overcomer. That's what I hope. But you know what? There's something real interesting about this. This may surprise you some. I'm not alone. The guy that started the Salvation Army is a guy named General Booth. And he published a book of his visions. And one of his visions is a vision. He, he said, I'm, I wasn't sure whether to really publish this or not, but I think God wants me to, so he published it. And he says he went to heaven, and it's, it's just this beautiful place, amazing place. And he just started experiencing all these incredible things. And then this amazing creature comes up to him and says, ah, Hey, we heard you came, and I know you're on a block where uh, my son was. Did, did you go witness to him and get him saved? And he says, uh, well, uh, so the guy, he already knows the answer. He leaves. And then it happens again. And he starts feeling kind of uneasy. Like, I'm here and I'm glad, but I sort of wish I had another chance at this. And then this big parade comes. And it's Jesus and all of his saints. And he's just astonished. And then Jesus says, you know, I wish you could join this, but you sort of didn't get your job done. And the guy says, please, can I have another chance? He said, I'm going to send you back. And this time, be a good witness. Now, in the case of General Booth, his calling was to be an evangelist. And so, he took that to heart. And he sold out. And he started this whole salvation. I don't remember whether this vision's in the middle of or exactly when it happened or whatever. But, you know, I, I take that to heart. When I read 1 Corinthians 3, 3 and I see the wood, hay, and stubble and all that, here's what I think. I really want to be an overcomer and I want to be raptured. But I think it would be better for me to be through the tribulation and die a martyr in the tribulation than to fail to be an overcomer and stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And know that I had this one-time opportunity to know God by faith and exercise my gifts and booted it. And that spiritual disappointment will be much worse than physical pain. Maybe that's what Jesus is showing us when He came from heaven and took on the form of a man and did something He didn't want to do. Did He want to die on the cross? 
Did he want to go through all that pain? I think it's clear to us from the Garden of Gethsemane he didn't really want to do all that. But he did it for the joy set before him. And that was to do the will of his father. And to disappoint his father was far worse than to avoid the pain. He could have called 10,000 angels at any time. They just would have gotten him out of it. So I think there's a principle there. There's a principle there for us. And we can bring it to today. We don't have to worry about the tribulation. Are there uncomfortable things that God's calling you to do? Are there painful things God's calling you to do with your gifts? Better do them. Better do them. Much better to suffer some physical discomfort now than to forever know that your opportunity to exercise your faith, you never have that opportunity again. So faith, hope, and love, only one remains, right? Love. You can't have faith in what you see and you can't hope for what you have. That's not going to be part of the second life. So, I just think it's important for us to have some humility when we get to prophecy. I don't know about the rapture. I don't know how many there are, who's going to go, when it's going to happen. I do know God is calling us to be watchful and faithful. That's really clear. And I know these principles. And the key thing I know, which we can get into very quickly this morning, just just maybe just for a second, is... The four horsemen of the apocalypse tell us exactly what is important, which is God is in control. So here we are. We'll do these real quick. The first four seals. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. So here we are unrolling this scroll. We break a seal and see this part of the story. Break another seal, see part of the story. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. Then he opened the third seal. I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard the voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And the power is given to him, them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. So these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Apocalypse is a Greek word. comes from the Greek word apocalyptica, which means uncovering. So if you have something covered with a blanket and you uncover it, you can see what's underneath. It reveals it. So the English translation of apocalyptica is revelation. And so this term apocalypse is also used for this revelation. It's come to mean something really bad that's happened because these four horsemen cause really bad things to happen. You see it. Now I want you to notice these phrases in verse 2. A crown was what? Given. By who? Yeah, it's coming from the throne room. We are still in the throne room. Look at verse 4. And it was granted. And look at verse 8. And death and Hades followed them, and power was given. Isn't that interesting? Why do you need to give death power? Apparently, 
Death has to have permission to act on anybody. That's a comforting thought, isn't it? It is to me. So death has to have permission. And in this case, death is given permission to destroy a fourth of the earth. With what? Sword. Well, you have a crown given to this person to conquer. How do people conquer? With violence usually, right? And sure enough, there's a sword that people kill one another. So death is granted to use people, violence, to conquer, to kill one another. And how else? With hunger. This term, a quart of wheat for a denarius, a quart of wheat is about enough for one person to survive for a day with minimal activity. A denarius is a day's wage. So we are spending all of our money just for food now. Food is very scarce. There's great scarcity on the earth. So a lot of people will die from war. What does war always create? Famine, right? Because you destroy the crops, you destroy the environment. And so power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill a sword with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. So with death, maybe sickness. Maybe there's sickness, which that usually goes with war as well. You know, the um, Peloponnesian War is a famous war. And the Athenians blockaded themselves up and they thought they were invulnerable because they had these gates from the city down to the sea coast and they thought we can survive a siege indefinitely. But they imported the plague and they were all confined behind these walls and they all died of the plague. So that's not an unusual thing to happen either in a war situation. It's curious though that beasts kick in as well. I I looked at this term beast and uh, the snake that Paul shook into the fire is this same word. So this could be poisonous snakes, poisonous spiders. I, I don't know what this is. Could could be that coyotes and bobcats go crazy. I, I don't know what happens. But apparently, this is happening. A fourth of the earth, that's a lot of people. Today, that would be two billion people dying. That's a lot of people. So we are now having authorization for all this really, really bad stuff to happen. And we just saw it, the cry of the martyrs, the fifth seal, and the martyrs say, but you haven't taken out the ones that did this to us yet. Which shows you that there's this tremendous desire for justice in heaven. So our desire for justice, it's because we're made in the image of God. And God never says, don't seek justice. He says, don't seek justice on your own. Leave it to me. And in this life, God has said, the way I'm doing justice in this life is through government. I've given government to you to execute wrath on evil. That's what government's role is. And there will come a day when the wrath of God is going to be executed upon people directly. And this is it. We see in the sixth seal, which we're about to get to, we'll see this. Look at verse 16 of chapter 6 here. Starting 15. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man. Anybody left out? That's everybody, isn't it? They hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come and who is able to stand? Notice what happens in in this great tribulation period. There's a total elimination of atheism. Everybody knows what's happening. 
The wrath of the Lamb is taking place. But isn't it fascinating that they don't ask for mercy? They just ask to be hidden from it because they know nothing can stand in its way. This is the wrath of God. The wrath of God brings justice because we have to have justice before we can have restoration. And the ultimate end of Revelation is total restoration of all creation and a complete remaking of the earth in a way that the earth is restored to what it was originally intended to be. So, the apocalypse has begun, crowns are given, powers granted, and really bad stuff starts to happen. And so next time, I'll go over this a little bit more and we'll pick up and talk about some things like when these voices come and say, come, where does he go? And some things like that that I think you'll find interesting. And then we'll go into the rest of these seals. And remember, seven seals, the seventh seal is seven trumpets. The last three trumpets are three woes. The last trumpet creates seven bowl judgments. And then the end will come. And that's where we're headed. Okay, thanks God for the promise of hope that you will redeem us. How exactly you do that, we don't know. We do know it will happen and that you've asked us to be faithful witnesses daily and be watching daily. And I pray that we would bear this in mind and do so and use the gifts and the circumstances you've granted us to be faithful right where we are with cups of water or with words of encouragement or with words of truth or whatever you've put in our path. God, I pray that you'll help us not seek comfort in circumstances but to seek comfort in you and your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.